You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. So those of you that grew up in the 1980s like I did uh, will remember that who grew up in the 80s? And I was on track to follow in his footsteps. 
From a young age, I memorized the Holy Scriptures. So students that are here tonight, don't talk to me about having too much homework. Try memorizing the Torah and being slapped by an angry rabbi when you forget a scripture. But I learned God's law down to the finest detail. I took great pains to obey the law. I took pride in my Jewish lineage and my religious performance. Most of you have read the Old Testament, so you already know that God's law includes many commands about giving. As a starting point, we Jews were called to give three different tithes. Yes, three tithes. The first 10% of all our increase went to the priests and the Levites who worked in the temple. The next 10% went to our festivals that we had. And then finally, every three years, we would give a third tithe, which went to support orphans, widows, the poor, and the Levites. On top of those tithes, we were asked to give free will offerings. So overall, we gave at least a third of our income, often more, back to the Lord. In our first century world, we were much, much poorer than you are today. And so giving a big chunk of our income like that back to God was not easy. But as a Jew, I felt compelled to obey God's commands. I also learned from the scriptures the principle of the firstborn. God told the Israelites that the firstborn of every man and animal belonged to him. And under the law, the firstborn must either be sacrificed or redeemed with an unblemished lamb. When Jesus was crucified, I realized that God even applied this principle of the firstborn to himself. He sacrificed his firstborn for us. So even God gave a tithe when he sacrificed his firstborn son, and he gave his tithe in faith without knowing what our response would be. God also commanded Israel to bring the first of the first fruits into his house. Not the last of your first fruits, but the first of your first fruits. And it is to be brought into the house of the Lord, not to wherever you choose to bring it. The principle of the first fruits is not just something in the Mosaic law. The principle actually predates Moses. In fact, you can try, trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when God told Adam and Eve that they could eat from any tree in the garden except one. That one tree belonged to him. And the man and women were commanded not to eat from it. When Adam and Eve stole what belonged to God, they were cursed. God later looked, looked with favor on Abel's offering because he gave fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. Cain, on the other hand, did not have, did not give his first fruits. And that didn't work out so well for Cain, as you may recall. He was cursed. Our father Abraham later gave Melchizedek 10% of all his increase, which set the pattern for giving a tithe to God. In fact, Abraham had such strong faith that he was even ready to return his firstborn son to God before God intervened. When my forefathers were leaving Egypt, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, you'll recall, and in, in his wrath, God killed all of the firstborn Egyptians, both the firstborn of man and animal, because they belonged to him. But he spared the firstborn of Israel because they were redeemed with the lamb. Again, God made it clear that the firstborn are his. Much later, when my forefathers were entering the promised land and conquering the first city of Jericho, God expected Joshua to dedicate this first city to him. Everything in that first city was to be given to the Lord, and then Israel could have all the rest of the cities across the Jordan. But one sinful man, Achan, decided to keep some of God's first fruits for himself. He kept a mantle, some silver, and some gold that he coveted, and he hid it. And when Joshua confronted him, he confessed, and Achan and his family were stoned, and death, stoned to death and burned. Not a great idea to take what belongs to God. And God finally expresses his heart about giving, I think, most directly through my favorite prophet, Malachi, the prophet whose name my father gave me. I think you know the scripture in Malachi 3. Will a man rob God? 
Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the window of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. So I know from the scriptures that God is serious about receiving the first fruits. The first fruits belong to him, and when we take them for ourselves, we are stealing from him. Money is a test of obedience and faith. And giving a tithe helps us to remember the giver, not just the gifts. I actually hear some of you say to me, well, Malachi, you're talking a lot of Old Testament here, and we would expect that from a former Jew. But we live under the new covenant now, and we're not under the law. It seems like some of you dismiss the idea of giving God a tithe because it's an Old Testament thing or it's legalistic. But to me, that's self-serving and flawed logic indeed. Believe me, as a former Pharisee and a slave to the law, I rejoice that Jesus gives me freedom. I don't have to earn God's favor by obeying the law. No amount of my giving will earn his favor. And I know that I'm saved only by the grace of God, not by my good works. But even so, I believe there are some timeless principles from God that we can't just dismiss because of the new covenant. And one of those verses is in Malachi 3 that you may have overlooked. In verse 6, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. God does not change. And I believe the principle of the first fruits is just as applicable today as it's always been. And some of you may disagree with me still and say, well, nothing in the Old Testament applies to you today. So let's just test that argument. Would any of you say, well, the first commandment is to have no other gods before me, but that's in the Old Testament, so it's okay to have idols under the new covenant? Of course not. That would be absurd. Or would you say that do not murder or do not commit adultery or do not steal are just Old Testament rules that God is not concerned with? Certainly not. You might ask, well, if you're saying we should tithe, should we also reinstitute the Old Testament sacrifice of animals too? No. Some Old Testament laws have been specifically dismissed under the New Covenant. And if you study the teachings of the apostles, you'll see that Jesus is the Lamb who redeemed us once for all. He is the only sacrifice we need. But Jesus did not dismiss the tithe. He actually affirmed it. I heard that affirmation of the tithe directly from the mouth of the Lord. And let me tell you how that happened. I was 20 years old when I saw Jesus in person for the first time. I was in awe of how this poor man from the countryside could teach and preach. Jesus humbled even our brightest scribes and experts in the law. And as I listened to him teach day after day, and I saw his miracles, I secretly started believing in him. And of course, I didn't let anyone know that until after he was crucified. But one day, when my Jewish friends and I were listening to Jesus, he told the follow his followers that their righteousness needed to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or they would never see the kingdom of heaven. And as a Pharisee, I, I sort of laughed at that because I couldn't believe that Jesus actually thought this ragtag group of outcasts could be more righteous than us Pharisees. And as we laughed at Jesus, he took the opportunity to give us the rebuke of our lifetime in public. You see, Jesus knew that we Pharisees took great pains to follow the law, but we were missing the heart that God wanted us to have. We gave an exact tithe of everything we received, down to the spices that grew in our gardens. But our hearts were really full of greed and pride and self-righteousness. And we loved to announce our giving with trumpets and to brag to everyone about how generous we were. And Jesus exposed our hearts in front of the crowds that day by pointing out that we should have continued to give our tithes 
without forgetting the more important matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So Jesus affirmed the tithe, but he wants us to give it with the right heart. Jesus said his followers should be more righteous than that and the Pharisees, and he was more concerned with the heart than with religious actions. So let me ask you just a few questions, modern church. Knowing what Jesus has done for you, how could some of you think it's okay to give your leftovers, to even give nothing to his church? If Jesus himself affirmed the tithe in front of the crowds, how can some of you dismiss it as an Old Testament concept that no longer applies? We Jews, without the Holy Spirit, gave at least a third of our income in response to the law. So how is it that some of you Christians, with forgiveness and the Holy Spirit, struggle to even give 10%? What is the grace of Jesus worth to you? Jesus knew that the heart of a man will be consumed with whatever he treasures. You will either treasure God and his kingdom, or you will treasure money, but you cannot serve two masters. You know, at this point, you may be wondering how I went from a Pharisee in training to a disciple of Jesus. And that's simple. I personally experienced his crucifixion. I was also in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached the gospel for the first time. And I was among the thousands who were cut to the heart by the message. And I was baptized by the apostles that same day. And as a new Christian, my legalistic heart was totally transformed by the Holy Spirit. I was so grateful for forgiveness. I was so amazed at God's great love for me. I was in awe of what the Son of God was willing to endure for me. So I could not imagine holding anything back from Him. I no longer considered anything to be my own. It all belonged to God and to His people. And my new Christian friends felt the same way. Our fellowship was so strong and our love was so powerful, we became an irresistible force in Jerusalem. People from all over the city were coming to find out what was going on with us. And when they saw our joy and our love, we helped many of them come to faith in the Lord. Many of us new disciples were disowned by our families, but the disciples didn't need to worry about having a roof over their heads or food on their table because we made sure everyone was taken care of. Indeed, we remember that Jesus taught us not to worry about material things because the Father knows what we need before we even ask Him. What amazes me about your modern churches in Los Angeles is that most of you live in incredible luxury compared to how we live. Most of you have homes, you have running water. Uh, I love those flushing toilets. You have electric lights and gadgets of all types. You have plenty of food, you have nice clothes and shoes. You live much longer than we ever did because of health care and medicine that we didn't have. But all the things that are the things that you think are essential really that essential. The disciples in the first century seem much happier than many of you, yet they didn't have most of the things that you think are essential. But I'm not surprised you believe you need those luxuries. While I was there, I was shocked and annoyed by the constant stream of advertising trying to convince me I just had to buy the latest and greatest to be truly happy. They even had me starting to believe I needed an iPhone XS to take back to Jerusalem with me. <laughs> I don't know who I would call or text, but the ads were compelling. <laughs> you may not feel like it, but you 21st century disciples in Los Angeles are so rich by first century standards. And I don't say that with a covetous heart. I say that with great excitement that you have more resources than anyone else in history to do good in the world around you. Yet as I looked around Los Angeles, I also saw great suffering. I saw families sleeping in cars or on the streets. I saw children going to bed at night hungry. I saw other children being trafficked and sold as sex slaves. I saw abuse. I saw violence. I saw hopelessness and despair and emptiness all around that city of yours. People in pain, suffering silently, right at your doorstep. But really, what really broke my heart is that I only saw 
a few disciples doing much about it. Jesus could bring so much healing, and indeed he is working through many people. And I saw some of you making a real difference with foster kids and the poor and the homeless and the hungry. But some of you seemed too busy and caught up in your church life to even notice what was going on all around you. It reminded me of the story that Jesus shared about a rich man who lived in luxury and walked right by a poor suffering beggar named Lazarus day after day. And I think you know how that parable ends. The rich man died and switched places with the beggar. And the rich man became the one who had to suffer for all eternity. And the fire was so intense that even a drop of water on his tongue would have felt like relief. And Jesus emphasized something over and over. He emphasized that in eternity, we will find ourselves in the opposite conditions from our life on earth. Everything will be turned upside down. The rich, selfish man will switch places with the suffering beggar. The last will be first. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who lose their life will save it. Blessed are the poor, the meek, the mourning, the hungry and thirsty, but woe to those who are rich. And what you give away on earth will become your treasure in heaven. Each of us will experience a great reversal after our short lives on earth. So why are so many modern Christians caught up with this life? Why would you exchange the rotting wealth here for eternal riches in heaven? Why not test God and bring all the tithes and offerings into the storehouse? Why not strive to give more of your free will offerings on top of the tithe? If you have, if you have unrealized potential in your giving, there is so much joy and blessing that could be yours. As your brother in Christ, please accept my observations with humility and decide if the shoe fits what you're going to do about it. But just one last thing as I wrap up my letter. Jesus said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. You know, I heard Jesus speak those words, but I must admit I was surprised that over 2,000 years later the end still hasn't come. Jesus said that the gospel must first be preached to the whole world before the end will come, and that hasn't happened yet, not even close. Over 5 billion souls in your modern world still do not know Jesus. In the whole history of the world, there have never been more people who have no idea what Jesus has done for them. There is still so much work for disciples to do. And meanwhile, you're some of the most wealthy Christians in the history of the world. You are the ones who can do something to get the gospel to all nations and to speed the coming of our Lord. So you must not let your love grow cold. Stand firm to the end. Give all you possibly can, my brothers and sisters. Get Jesus out to the dying world and trust him. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Give generously, and you'll have so much treasure in heaven that you'll be truly begging Jesus to come take you home. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. What you give on earth will be celebrated in heaven for all eternity. May the grace and love of our Lord Jesus be with you always, your brother in Christ, Malachi. So, I'm going to switch from fiction to maybe some autobiography. Um, my response to, to that, I had some time to, as you can tell, do some study on giving. Uh, the last few weeks, and, and I've personally been pretty convicted and also inspired at the same time. I mean, I'm convicted because I've taken the time to really reflect on my own history of giving. And I became a disciple, a lot of you know the story, in 1999. And I remember being challenged with the Malachi 3 scripture that I should test God by giving a full 10% of my gross income. And I, I remember like it was yesterday, writing out my first tithe check. And I think my hand was quivering a little bit. <laughs> Because it seemed like a lot of money at the time. I wasn't making a ton of money and I had a lot of bills to pay. But I took Malachi 3 seriously and I, I, I decided I was going to be obedient with my giving. I wouldn't call myself a cheerful giver in those early years, but I was an obedient giver. Um, and, I, and God, 
as he says of Malachi, he totally came through as he said he would. I mean, he just showered blessing after blessing on me. And just a few years after giving faith to the Lord, I, I, I had an amazing woman of God as my wife. I, I had, you know, um, two precious sons. I gave me many deep friendships in the church, gave me a new purpose and meaning for my life. Um, and he blessed me in my career. And then when me and I were married in 2001, we had about 25,000 of student loans that we still had to pay off, and we had a mortgage on our first house in San Dimas. And yet we stayed faithful with giving our tithe, and we gave to God first, and we really believed in that. We stayed disciplined to our tithe, and we also stayed disciplined to our budget. Um, and we lived like Spartans for the first year of our marriage. <laughs> you know, we, uh, we, we really paid off all the loans in the first year, and I remember we, we didn't have much. We couldn't afford to ever go out to eat, maybe, maybe once every couple months or so we went to a uh, that Mexican restaurant shared an entree. <laughs> and we took a pass on buying really much of anything until we were out of debt. We didn't have any furniture in our house. We were not wearing finest clothing. We were not driving fancy cars. But that really didn't bother me and me. We both came from humble beginnings to begin with. But what did matter is that we were honoring God with the money that he gave us. And we were calling others to do the same. You know, we were teaching personal finance classes in the East region to help people live within their means and to give generously. And God continued to bless us in the following years, you know, because we continued to give our first fruits to Him. And God advanced me in my career. I was promoted, and they moved me to Seattle in 2003. We were part of the Seattle Church of Christ from 2003 to 2011. During that time, our income grew significantly. And I remember that I got a lot of joy during those years from physically writing out a tithe check, writing out the amount by hand every month. And on Sunday, I would hand the check to Mia for her to put in the basket because it was her contribution to and I remember seeing the smile on her face when she'd open it up and look at the amount. I mean, we were cheerful givers. And so much so that Scott Green, who was leading the Seattle Church, when we left in 2011, said, we're so sorry to see you go for many reasons. And by that, he meant the church was going to miss us, but also our financial giving. And we moved back to L.A. in 2011 when I was promoted into senior leadership of my company. And I remember that we had sticker shock at the cost of living in South Bay uh, compared to Seattle. I mean, our cost of housing literally tripled moving here, um, and everything was more expensive. And on top of that, I actually took a bit of a pay cut when I moved from institutional sales into management. And I remember during the, when we first got here, feeling more financial anxiety than I had felt ever. And as I've been studying up giving, I decided just to go back and look at our tax returns from 2011 to 2017. I don't recommend doing that, um, <laughs> but I did. And, and, I, and I was discouraged to find that in 2012 and 2013, the years when we were feeling the most financial pressure, it was when the first time that Mia and I didn't quite give a full tithe of our income. And I remember wavering during, during those years whether we should give on our gross before tax income or our after tax income, especially since taxes were so much higher in California. But looking back now, I'm just devastated by that. I, I'm devastated that I stopped trusting God in those years. And I really do feel like I robbed him. Because, I mean, after all, if we could live on 91% of what he gave us, we could have lived on 90% of what he gave us. And looking back, I really let my financial anxiety affect my faith to my shame. And my study on the scriptures, though, you just heard them in the letter, I mean, it once again convicted me about the tithe. I mean, from now on, I see the tithe as this, the floor of my giving, the minimum, not the maximum. And it's just not an Old Testament thing. And I can now look back and see that God has blessed us over the years when we gave our first fruits back to Him. And, and, and it's giving that's brought us the most joy. Not the expectation of receiving more from giving, but that we've just been content. You know, when we have plenty and when we don't have a lot. 
And when we started giving on CCB, when we got here, giving became much more routine, I would say. I might even say uninspired. Um, over the last couple of months, I've, I've just really taken some time to look around at the work that God is doing, both, both locally here in L.A. and around the world. And I have to tell you that I am more excited and I am more ex inspired about giving than I have been perhaps ever. And I'm very excited to see our church become the instrument to really change the world around us. Because God is doing amazing work right here in L.A. that we can be part of. If you want to see a cool website, go to dogoodla.org. Do Good LA, they basically have studied some of the best nonprofits, and you can get a little profile of each one of them out there. But it is unbelievable some of the work that the Lord is doing in LA right now as we sit here. I mean, just a few of the organizations. Chrysalis helps homeless and low income to find and retain employment. Baby to Baby provides low income children with basic necessities like diapers and baby formula. Anti recidivism coalition helps formerly incarcerated men and women to re enter society and stay out of prison. Imagine LA, me and I actually went downtown and we met with them in their offices. They help, they help homeless, formerly homeless families to transition into permanent housing by partnering with them and mentoring them over an 18-month period of time with volunteer mentors who are planning on signing up and going through the training to become mentors there. PATH, you know, helps children uh, and families to stay in permanent housing, provides them supported services. School on Wheels, that's cool, when they actually tutor homeless children in, in, in portable buses. They go and they tutor them and they distribute school supplies. Working wardrobes provides career support and clothing for low-income men and women. Shoes that fit provide shoes to children in need. So more than ever, I'm convinced. I'm convinced that God wants us and he needs us to get more involved in what he's already doing all around us in the city that we live in. And as his disciples, we are salt and we are light. But we have to push outside of our own four walls to get involved and to show people how much he loves them. So show people how much Jesus loves them. I mean, I love stories. Like, I see Missy Hood here, and I, if you see it on Facebook, Missy just posted the House of Yahweh, right? Opportunity to volunteer there. You found that. You posted it out there. I love that kind of activity. Steve rounds up four truckloads of, of stuff to ship to the fires. I mean, that's amazing. And if we bring the whole tithe in the storehouse, just imagine what our church could do. Imagine how much support we could do for the work that God's already doing. We could be a church... That could be much more of a force for good and justice here in our city. As I've looked beyond Los Angeles, I've also been convicted by the work that still needs to be done to take the gospel to our world. I recently was introduced to this research group called the Joshua Project. And they're analyzing the world to see where we still haven't reached people with the gospel of Jesus. And their conclusions are absolutely staggering. Go to their website, here's at joshuaproject.net. But... A couple of stats that just stick in my mind, actually, that there are 5 billion people in the world today that do not know Christ. That's more souls than at any other time in history. 41% of the peoples in the world have never even heard of Jesus. 41%. Amazing. When they look at it and they analyze where they are, the majority of them are in what's called that 1040 window. That's between the 10th and the 40th parallel. And you can see it's the red zone there. It starts in North Africa, goes through the Middle East, all the way into India and in Asia. But when they look at Christianity across the board, all missionaries being sent out, only 1 in 10 missionaries are being sent to those countries. And even more staggering is that for every dollar of all Christian giving, Less than one cent, one penny of every dollar goes to plant churches in those 1040 countries. 
North Americans spend more on Halloween costumes for their pets than we spend on outreach to those, those countries. So as a disciple of Jesus in the wealthiest nation in the world, how does that make you feel? I mean, personally, it makes me feel motivated and excited. That <laughs> there's still much work to do. And God wants us to, he wants to use us to do something about it. You know, as I read the results of the South Bay Church Giving Survey, a lot of you participated in last month, one thing that struck me in the responses were just how people are feeling about their giving. You know, here's some of the verbatim responses on this question. Do you feel like a generous and cheerful giver? Things like, it's mostly routine. Or giving through CCB is a disconnect for me on a hard level. I don't really feel anything about cheer or generosity. Right? I, I feel generous, but maybe not cheerful. I need to remind myself why I give. Or I wonder if my contribution would have a greater impact spiritually and from social justice perspective if given elsewhere. I've wrestled with my own heart over the years. I feel guilty and stressed about trying to catch up. So what I notice is that some of us are giving out a routine, and, and, and we're not feeling inspired about our giving. And perhaps that's because we're just losing touch of how God wants to use us. To, to do the work that he's doing all over the world, we can join him. You know, as Romans 12 says, you know, one of my favorite scriptures, Romans 12, we have to guard against being conformed to the pattern of the yeah, world. Right. We have to transform our minds to not be materialistic like, like everyone else around us in the world. Because, you know, as disciples, we need to define our success in eternal terms, not worldly terms. Uh, you know, over the last several months, I've, I've gotten into the habit of, of journaling during my time with God and writing down what I'm hearing from the Holy Spirit. And I'll just close my comments here before we break into our discussion groups with something I heard the Spirit telling me just a few days ago on November 9th. I heard, be obedient to what you hear from my Spirit. You are right, there is so much work to do. Five billion souls don't know what I've done for them. So use your time and money there on earth wisely. How do you want to be known for eternity as the rich man who hoarded his wealth or as the hero who gave it all to save as many as possible? A brief, comfortable life, that's uninspiring. Will you exchange the brief, comfortable life for eternal glory with me? Folks, what you do with your money is going to resonate in eternity. It will. And so let's get to work. Let's give all that we possibly can. And let's join God in what he's doing all around us. Uh, and let's build our treasures in heaven. So I'm going to put up three questions here. If you want to break into your small groups, if you don't have a small group, just pick one and join. Um, and the uh, first question is, are you giving your first fruits to God? And how do you think about the tithe? Is it a ceiling for your giving or is it, is it a minimum? Second question is, is the Holy Spirit calling you to repent in your giving in any way tonight? And if so, what's your plan? Do you need help? Do you need to get advice on your giving? Do you need help with setting a budget? I was interested at the South Bay Giving Survey that 40% of those that were surveyed don't have a budget, which is appalling to me. If you need a budget, talk to somebody to get help with it. Um, how do you want to be remembered in eternity? Good question to wrestle with. So I'll go ahead and dismiss you to your discussion groups. Steve, was there anything else you wanted to say? So one final Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.